He grew up not knowing who his father was, knew it was some German soldier. He was taunted throughout his growing up as a, as a so-called Fistebusch, which is a very rude expression, meaning son of a German soldier. So he fights in the French army in World War II. And afterward, when he's 30 years old, his mother says, by the way, that father you've always wondered about, that was Hitler, the late chancellor of Germany, the most despised person in the world. Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. What's it like to be the son or daughter of a dictator? Not just any dictator, but a genocidal monster on the level of Joseph Stalin. What's it like to bear a name synonymous with oppression, terror, and evil? Jay Nordlinger, a senior editor of National Review, set out to answer that question in his book, Children of Monsters, an inquiry into the sons and daughters of dictators. This is a presentation that was delivered as part of the 2015 Acton Lecture Series. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Acton's close relationship with William Buckley, he's not only the founder of the National Review magazine, but also in 1991, Bill Buckley also founded National Review Institute. The relationship between Bill Buckley and the Acton Institute goes all the way back 25 years ago to Acton's very first annual dinner because William F. Buckley was the keynote speaker at that very first event. In 2008, Acton honored Bill Buckley in this manner. And it's, uh, this was at the annual dinner. The Acton Institute pays tribute to one of the greatest and most well-known conservative leaders, the late William F. Buckley Jr. At this year's 2008 annual dinner, Kate O'Byrne, National Review's Washington editor, will accept the Faith and Freedom Award on Buckley's behalf. Buckley, who passed away in February, was also a valuable supporter and friend of the Acton Institute. Reverend Robert Sirico said of William Buckley, he was a man of faith and a man who understood his faith. He was a man who believed in liberty and organized one of the most significant magazines that made the case for human liberty and the conservative cause. Reverend Sirico also said, one of the secrets that I learned from Bill Buckley in building a movement for human freedom was to be encouraging of other efforts pulling in the same general direction. So when the National Review and the National Review Institute arrives here amongst us in this building, it is indeed a homecoming. It is a distinct honor and privilege. And so Jay, and Katie, on behalf of Acton and its thousands of benefactors and supporters, we say welcome to you both. Welcome. Lord John Acton is famous for many quotes, including his most notable quote. Power tends to corrupt and finish it with me. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I say absolutely to that. But he also said things such as this, things that kind of bother you a little bit, kind of ruffle your feathers. But this quote has a lot to do with what Jay's going to talk about right now. This is what Lord Acton said. The danger is not that a particular class is unfit to govern. In fact, every class is unfit to govern. And remember and never forget, where you have a concentration of power, in only a few hands, all too frequently, men with the mentality of gangsters get control. History has sadly proven that. 
So today, Jay will share with his, his research, his inquiry into what it is like to be a child of one of history's gangsters who not only sought, but in fact confiscated control at any cost from freedom-loving people. So who were these kids? What's it like to be the son or the daughter of Stalin, of Saddam, of Mao, of Mobutu, or of Pol Pot? What's it like? Is this DNA lineage, is it automatically condemning this child to be a monster like their father? Or is there a chance that this child could possibly break free to break the bonds of tyranny and to embrace liberty? Well, such is the information we are gifted with today. So please join me now offering a warm, dry West Michigan welcome to our guest, our friend, our featured speaker, Mr. Jay Nordlinger. Thank you, and thanks so much for coming. I hadn't thought of the Halloween angle. That's really good. I, my, public, my publicist could have made a lot more of that. I have a couple of days I should tell them. Um, I've written a peculiar book, uh, but, but a rather interesting book, I, I hope. Uh, let me say first, though, that I'm grateful to be here at the Acton Institute. I've always known about it, or long known about it. I've never been here. Uh, I'm a Michigander. Uh, I'm from Ann Arbor. I remember visiting Grand Rapids as a, as a child, and I knew a lot of Grand Rapidians who were elsewhere in, in Michigan. And I learned an expression, in fact, from, from a rather famous opera singer, Michelle DeYoung, who is from somewhere in southwestern Michigan. And that expression is, if you're not Dutch, you're not much. And I thought of that when seeing name tags. Um, before we got started here. So many Dutch names. Yeah, if you're not Dutch, you're not much. I love it. So um, a pleasure to be here. So I'll tell you about this funny book, though not funny, ha ha. There are a few jokes in it. Um, I was in Albania some years ago uh, doing a little speaking. And Albania had suffered one of the worst dictatorships of the whole 20th century, that of Enver Hoxha. Really, there was almost nothing else like it on Earth except for the Kim Il-sung dictatorship in North Korea. And Hoja admired Kim a great deal and imitated him to a degree. Albania was a kind of European North Korea. No one came in, no one went out. Hoja, for about 40 years, controlled this place as a personal dungeon. So here I was in Albania, and I was thinking about how Hoja had pervaded the country for those 40 years. In fact, one of his nicknames bestowed by the party, that is, Communist Party, was Soul Force, S-O-L-E, only force, the soul force. And that was pretty much true in Albania. And it occurred to me to ask, did Hoja have children? Because I couldn't quite imagine being the son or daughter of Hoja in that environment. What did you do? Did you have to leave the country? Did you have to change your name? Could you go out? How did people treat you? What did you think of your father and his dictatorship? And so on. And because I'm a magazine writer, and as a colleague of mine says, a magazine writer is always looking for his next piece. He never knows where his next meal is coming from. I thought, well, the Hoja children could make a magazine piece. Kind of interesting. And then I thought in the next thought, you could actually do a survey of such sons and daughters and make a book of it called Children of Monsters. And I put that idea on the back burner where so many of my ideas go. But years later, uh, I brought it out because a publisher wanted the topic and I wrote the book. I survey uh, 20 dictators and it would be natural to think that I aim for that number because it's such a nice, round, juicy number. But actually, I just drew up a list of dictators I thought I should cover, and it came to 20. It did that in part because there were some dictators I could not include because they did not have children. And I think primarily of Lenin and also Ho Chi Minh. I also did just modern dictators, 20th century dictators. It leaks into the 21st because Fidel Castro ruled in the 21st century, and now the third Kim is on the throne in North Korea. 
and a second Assad on the throne in Syria. But they're all moderns. You could have gone back into antiquity. Caligula, for example, had a child, just one, a daughter. And she was, I'm sorry to say, murdered the same day as her parents in 41 AD. She was a year and a half. Also, to go forward to the rush of the 16th century and Ivan the Terrible, uh, Ivan's son, also named Ivan the Tsarevich, Ivan the Terrible killed his son with his own, with his, Ivan the Terrible's scepter in a fit of rage. He didn't really mean to, it was a fit of rage. He beat him with his scepter and killed his son and was later horrified by this. And this moment was uh, immortalized, if you will, by the Russian painter Repin at the end of the 19th century, a, a, a gripping and, and, and haunting painting. So it could have been quite a long book. Uh, you could have gone through millennia, but instead it's 20 modern dictators. I might mention that um, the dictator, dictator of Central Africa, I was about to say emperor, uh, Bokassa crowned himself emperor Napoleon style and renamed his country the Central African Empire. He was a run-of-the-mill, maybe not so run-of-mill, an extraordinary African dictator, I would say, in that he was extraordinarily ghastly. He did kill people with his scepter. Uh, actually, it was, a, it was an ebony walking stick, very, very hard. And he killed people with it, though none of his children, so far as I know, he did imprison a few of his children. So I'll give you my lineup, this murderer's row, literally. Here's how my book is organized. I begin with uh, World War II dictators, and I throw in Franco just for fun, who doesn't really belong in a book called Children of Monsters, but that's another story. I discuss it in my book. So I begin with Hitler, Mussolini, Franco, Stalin, Tojo. Then I stay in the Far East for Mao and Kim, Kim's son and grandson. Back to Europe for Hoja and Ceausescu, Hoja of Albania, Ceausescu of Romania. Then I do Duvalier in Haiti and Castro. Those are my Caribbean dictators. One could have done a Trujillo of the Dominican Republic, who is a nasty piece of work. I have three Arabs, Gaddafi, Assad, and Saddam, uh, over to Iran for Khomeini. Four Africans, Mobutu, Bokassa, Idi Amin, Mengistu, who is known as the Stalin of Ethiopia. And then I end with a kind of coda about Pol Pot's daughter, who is a lovely young woman, about 30 years old, who got married last year. That's an interesting story. So this book has, if I may say, a string of interesting stories, not because of me, but because they just, they just are. And they're, they're often uh, sensational. And so the book can be read as a string of stories or life sketches, or you can perceive and draw out themes, social themes, psychological themes, political themes, having to do with uh, loyalty, paternity, nature nurture, childhood, that sort of thing. I do a little bit of that, but I'm loath to do too much because I found that as soon as I went to make a general statement, I could contradict it. Uh, in any case, sure, these men and women share a common situation or circumstance. They are the son or daughter of a dictator. That I grant you. But they are individuals, and they have coped with that situation or circumstance in their various individual ways. So I thought I'd touch on a few of the families, maybe half of the families, say a little something about 10 or so of the families, beginning with Hitler. And you'll quite rightly ask, what is Hitler doing in your book? He had no children. Everyone knows that. True. Or, or probably true. But there was a claimant. There was a man, a Frenchman named Jean-Marie Loret, whose mother told him that he was the son of Hitler. Uh, the story goes like this. She was a French peasant girl during World War I, 16 years old in, I think, 1916. I'll have to check it. And she met this Austrian-German soldier, Hitler. There was a brief affair, and a child resulted, Jean-Marie. He grew up not knowing who his father was, knew it was some German soldier, 
He was taunted throughout his growing up as a, as a so-called fils de Bosch, which is a very rude expression, meaning son of a German soldier. So he fights in the French army in World War II. And afterward, when he's 30 years old, his mother says, by the way, that father you've always wondered about, that was Hitler, the late chancellor of Germany, the most despised person in the world. That's a fine how do you do, and a, a card not dealt to very many of us. So for a long time, he denied this within himself. Uh, then he became obsessed with the question, researched it, and concluded that he was, in fact, the son of Hitler. I must tell you, he looked a lot like him, as does his son, Philippe, who is living in France and has two portraits of Hitler on his living room wall. My line is, you would have thought one would be enough. He's got, he's got two up there. Now, um, so the consensus of historians is that Loret was not Hitler's son and that Hitler did not have children. I accept the consensus, but I must say, a very uncanny physical resemblance. That's a heck of a coincidence. The question for my book is, um, Jean-Marie Loret believed himself the son of Hitler, so what effect did this have on him? And the answer is very, very bad. Uh, he was a tormented fellow. I think he was a little bit nuts or more than a little. Uh, and in the end, he was proud of being Hitler's son, as he thought he was. And so the question is, how much slack can we cut this character? Some slack, I would say, although not infinite. Moving to Mussolini, who had five children, I should say five official children, because so many of these guys had unofficial children or off-the-books children. I sometimes call them extracurricular children. But he had five official ones, probably the best known as Edda, his eldest child, and uh, his daughter, his first daughter, who grew up to marry Count Ciano, who became Mussolini's foreign minister and was fact in fact, executed later by Mussolini, or at least Mussolini, this is slightly murky and debated, uh, declined to stay the execution of his son-in-law. And so your Edda Mussolini Ciano, your two favorite people in all the world are your husband and your father. The one kills the other. That is, as we say in my neck of Michigan, a ticklish situation. And she's not the only daughter of a dictator who has had to face it so did two of Saddam's three daughters. Romano Mussolini was Mussolini's youngest son. He was 17 when his father was killed. When he last saw his father, he, Romano, was playing the piano, uh, picking out tunes from Lehar's Merry Widow, which was Hitler's favorite work of art. Hitler's known for his fondness, indeed adoration, of Wagner, he loved this operetta and went to it over and over again and personally awarded its composer, Franz Lehar. In any event, Mussolini said to Romano, keep playing, Romano. And so Romano did. He became a jazz pianist. Uh, at the first part of his career, at the outset of his career, he performed under a pseudonym. Romano Full, he called himself, F-U-L-L. Where he got the name, I have no idea. It has nothing to do with Italian. But then he found that his name, Mussolini, was more of a draw than a repellent. So he and his group were uh, Romano Mussolini and the All-Stars. And they performed the Dizzy Gillespie and Duke Ellington and Ella Fitzgerald and pretty much everybody. Romano married, his first wife was the sister of Sophia Loren. They had a couple of children, daughters, including Alessandra, who is the leader of uh, neo-fascism in Italy today. She's a member of the European Parliament. She's been a member of both houses of the Italian Parliament. She is a real piece of work, flamboyant, mouthy. Earlier in her life, she was on the cover of Playboy, European edition. She appeared in movies and television shows. She has a medical degree. She is, as I say, quite a piece of work. And if you can imagine being the granddaughter of Mussolini, and the niece of Sophia Loren, and these are arguably the two biggest figures of the whole Italian 20th century, that's Alessandra. We go to the Stalins. Officially speaking, there were three Italian, did I say Italian? Three Stalin kids. There were unofficial kids we know a little bit about. But there were two official sons, one daughter. They all lived 
all too interesting lives. Uh, the second son, Vasily, was a little monster. I think I'll speak about him later. I want to say some things about Svetlana right now, the daughter. Um, she is the most famous of all the sons and daughters of dictators. If you don't count the successor sons, that is the two Kims and Bashar Assad and Baby Doc in Haiti. And Svetlana is most famous for a couple of reasons. She defected to the West, to the United States, at the height of the Cold War in 1967. By the way, we always talk about the height of the Cold War. That spans about 30 years, you know, people to use very loosely. There's something writers and journalists said, height of the Cold War. You know, could be 1954, could be 1981. And, and, yeah. So she defects in 1967. This causes a sensation naturally. But I think the reason Svetlana is enduringly famous is that she got it all down, her life and her thoughts, in three memoirs, two of which are great and will last, if not forever, for a very, very long time. She was a brilliant memoirist and ought to be known for that. She, uh, she had an opportunity. It's a funny story how this came about. Um, I'll, I'll save it for reading. Um, she found herself in India in, at the end of 1966 and early 1967. She was let out for a particular reason, let out of the Soviet Union. And she walked into the U.S. Embassy and asked for political asylum. And our guy on duty said, so you say you're Stalin's daughter. The Stalin? I love that. I just love it. Um, while here, she, she had a rocky, turbulent life, back and forth. She died a few years ago in a Wisconsin nursing home, Richland Center, Wisconsin. She was in her mid-80s. Imagine that. In the mid-1920s, she's born the princess of the whole vast Soviet empire, born in the Kremlin. And she dies relatively anonymously in a Wisconsin nursing home. She does have a daughter, an American daughter, who is the manager of a, uh, a vintage clothing and jewelry boutique in Portland, Oregon. She is, uh, judging from her pictures, uh, a Pacific Northwest hipster with tattoos and a nose ring and dyed hair and the, all the rest of it. Uh, what a strange twist. But I've got more, because I'll turn now to Tojo in Japan, who had seven children, I think that Tojo was a pretty conscientious father, certainly as dictators go. For one thing, he prepared his children for his execution in, I would say, a quite thoughtful, conscientious way, if I can give him just a smidgen of credit. Anyway, he had seven children, the youngest of whom was a daughter, Kimmy, who was, I think, 14 or so when her father was executed. Uh, later in the 1950s, she came here to the United States to Michigan. She studied at the University of Michigan, she lived in the Martha Cook Residence Hall in Ann Arbor, same as my mother had. My mother left the year before. She married an American, uh, became a U.S. citizen. Her name is Kimmy Tojo Gilbertson. Get this, she lives in Honolulu, a stone's throw from Pearl Harbor. Her father attacked Pearl Harbor, launching the Pacific War, whose aim was to destroy the United States. Uh, his youngest daughter is a U.S. citizen living practically within view, I exaggerate, of Pearl Harbor. About the Kims, I will not say much. Uh, North Korea, as Gene Kirkpatrick said, is a psychotic state, something rare in history. Um, North Korea is brutal and psychotic beyond human imagining. I've interviewed several defectors and escapees. Let me say something light to the extent anything about North Korea can be light. The second Kim dictator, Jong Il, loved basketball. How he found it, I have no idea. But he, uh, perhaps when he was a student in Europe, we know he studied in Malta, might have studied in Switzerland, unclear. I'm not big on information, the North Korean dictatorship. But um, he followed the NBA fanatically. We get the word fan from fanatic. His favorite player was Michael Jordan, understandably. And when Madeleine Albright, our Secretary of State, went to North Korea, uh, she brought with her a basketball signed by Jordan. Uh, that ball is now in the North Korean International Friendship Exhibition Hall, along with such gifts as these. A crocodile briefcase from Castro, 
a gem-encrusted sword from Arafat, and a bear's head from Ceausescu. So the third Kim dictator shares this love of basketball. You may have read about his quite odd friendship with Dennis Rodman, a former piston. I'll always honor him for that. Um, the Ceausescu's in Romania. Nicolae and his wife Elena ruled as almost co-dictators. She was just about as bad as he. They dubbed themselves the father and the mother of the nation. They were an awful, awful family, including one of the sons, Nicu. Uh, Ceausescu wanted to establish the first communist dynasty. He was having competition in this regard, of course, over in North Korea. But he wanted to set up the first communist dynasty. He had it sort of planned out. It didn't come to that. He fell before he could pass on power to his son or indeed to his wife. They fell, you may remember this, around Christmas 1989. They were executed uh, summarily. And it's interesting the way they went out, those two. Uh, some people say that everyone has religion, even people who don't think they do. And Ceausescu went out singing the Internationale, the socialist hymn. I believe it was a kind of prayer for him. Uh, Elena did not go out prayerfully. She went out cursing her executioners in saltiest Romanian. Um, consider the Qaddafis for a minute. Muammar Qaddafi in Libya had eight children, including seven sons. Uh, I think people all over the world, I'm sorry to have to say this, prize their sons. They really do in the Arab culture. And Qaddafi was rich in sons. He had seven Many of them were goons and thugs, beasts, really. Uh, there, was son, there was a son, Saif al-Islam, who tried to go straight, so to speak. He was a bit of an intellectual. He wanted to be a Western-style liberal or at least an Arab reformer. He had lots of education in the West. Most of these guys and gals do, frankly. Seems not to leave a scratch on them. Um, Saif... Uh, received a PhD from the London School of Economics. There's a question about whether he actually wrote his dissertation. There's a little debate. Anyway, he loved to talk up democracy. I myself met him at an international conference. He did a lot of talking about democracy. In fact, he said, do you know why we Arabs lose our wars against Israel? Because they're democratic and we are not. So their military commanders have their positions because of merit. In one of our countries, the most incompetent officer is appointed the army chief of staff because he's no threat to stage a coup d'etat. We need democracy, he said. Um, but when push came to shove, when uh, the Qaddafi dictatorship was under attack in what became the Libyan civil war, Saif al-Islam, I call him that because there are two Saifs in the Qaddafi family, uh, went home to Tripoli to defend the dictatorship, including with arms, grew a beard, ranted on television, committed war crimes, and is now wanted by the Hague. Uh, he is a prisoner in Libya, perhaps under house arrest, it's a little unclear. Uh, at any rate, I consider Saif al-Islam Qaddafi a tragedy. Uh, lots of these kids are. He is a genuine tra tragedy, because I think he really wanted to pull away and go straight. And I must say that for many of these kids, I call them kids, sometimes I call them my kids. You've heard of Jerry's kids. You know, these are my, my kids. Um, it's sometimes hard for me to tell whether these kids are victims or victimizers. Sometimes they are a blend. Little Assad Bashar was not supposed to be the dictator. The appointed one, the anointed one, was his elder brother, Basil. Hafez Assad became dictator of uh, Syria in 1970, I believe, his eldest son, oh, by the way, actually his eldest daughter, surviving daughter, Bushra, she would have been dictator, but she was of the wrong sex, so she had to be passed over. And this is true of several of the daughters I study. Uh, Papa Doc Duvalier had a daughter who surely would have been dictator instead of baby Doc, but she was of the wrong sex. The same is true, I think, of Kim Jong-il and his brood. Uh, at any rate, uh, the anointed one in Syria was Basil, the eldest son. He was everything a dictator should be. He was glamorous. He was handsome. He was confident. He was charismatic. He was smart. He was brave. He was very popular. 
They called him the Golden Knight because of his equestrian skills. A uh, bit of a playboy. Uh, anyway, he was the anointed one. And in fact, Hafez Assad, the, the dictator, the father, restyled himself uh, Abu Basil, father of Basil, in order to prepare the country for this next dictator. Uh, Basil, however, was killed uh, in 1994 at the age of 31. It was a car crash. He was late for the airport. It was a foggy morning, uh, rushing to catch a flight. He had a new Mercedes. Anyway, he, uh, he died. And so Bashar had to be called home to be groomed for the dictatorship. Where was he? He was in London. He was an eye doctor. He was practicing eye surgery at the Western Eye Hospital in London. And he was a kid who never wanted anything to do with the dictatorship, not with politics, not with power. He was rather the opposite of Basel. He was shy, nerdy, bookish. He was a photographer. He loved black and white photography. He was ungainly in his physical appearance. Basel just glided through life, adored. And, and, and Bashar was, as I say, completely different. Uh, but he came home to be groomed. And I must say that in a sense, he has stepped up to the plate. Uh, he has killed more people than his father ever dreamed of killing, and his father killed a lot. Uh, Bashar has done whatever it has taken to keep the family business going. Now, you might say in his defense, sort of, defense is the wrong word. You might say in understanding that in Syria, there is an element of kill or be killed. So if Bashar fell, in all likelihood, the Alawite community from which he springs would face massacre a little anecdote about Bashar and his distance from his father. He first entered his father's office when he was seven years old. He had just had his first French lesson. He was flush with excitement. French was once the language of Syrian elites. And he burst into his father's office to tell him about this French lesson. He was seven. The next time he entered that office was after his father's funeral when he himself was dictator. Saddam had several children. I'm over in Iraq now. You may remember Uday and Kusay, as John McCain said, those lovable scamps. They were horrible, horrible men who tortured and raped and killed a great many. I won't get into that now. I just want to say this about Saddam and succession, because these dictators, like royals, face succession questions. Although maybe royals face less of a question because it's more set up with you know, firstborn and so on. But Saddam told one of our FBI interrogators something very, very interesting after we pulled him from that spider hole. By the way, those interviews are fascinating. I think that Saddam often found himself in a confessional mood. He wanted to talk, and it was very interesting. He said really he hadn't anointed either Uday or Kusay yet. He liked to keep people at a distance, not let them have too much power within this dictatorship, which was a, really a clan-centered dictatorship. The reason, he said, is that he saw in the very early 1970s the Sultan of Oman deposed by his own son. And that was a lesson to him always. Go to Iran now for a little bit of Khomeini. Um, he had several children. I want to speak, though, about a grandchild, uh, a grandson, Hussein Khomeini who became a real liberal Democrat, with a small d, that is, a believer in liberal democracy. And when our forces overthrew Saddam in 2003, he moved to Iraq, and he urged the overthrow of the Khomeinist regime in Iran by force of American arms, if necessary. He said it would be a blessing. In other words, he advocated the overthrow of the very dictatorship his grandfather established. Uh, he came here to the United States, to Washington. He had some meetings. And then early in 2004, the first week of January that year, he was called home by his grandmother, Khomeini's widow. The dictatorship had issued threats against the family, uh, which were surely physical threats, in other words, murder, uh, if uh, the grandson, Hussein Khomeini, continued to do what he was doing. So he hightailed it back home, and uh, we think has been under house arrest ever since. A very interesting case that young man, we're less young now. Let's go to Africa for a bit for Idi Amin, the dictator of Uganda, butcher. He had 60 children above that, six zero children, with something like 21 um, 
mothers, let's call them. Uh, the first child was born in the late 1940s and the last one in the mid-1990s. That's a heck of a span, I think. And um, he was a fairly jolly father to this army of people. Uh, they called him Big Daddy. Uh, he had a fun side, a fun-loving side. Uh, for example, in exile in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, he liked to take his family or some of it shopping at Safeway. And they raced down the aisles with their carts, and he drove them in a Chevy Caprice classic station wagon. And according to his son, Jafar, Idi Amin's very favorite food in all the world was Kentucky Fried Chicken. And this is something that I sort of have in common with the Ugandan dictator. I like, I like KFC a lot. The son I talked with, Jafar, is an interesting character in that on one side of him, he's an apologist for his father's dictatorship, a whitewasher, a defender of that ghastly regime. Another side of him is clearer, and he has moments of, as I say, clarity and confession, and he realizes that things went wrong, to put it mildly, and he works for reconciliation in Uganda. I, I, I quite admire him. He is stand-up, so to speak. He'll take on all comers, including me, and this is something pretty rare among sons and daughters of dictators. I mentioned that daughter of Pol Pot. Pol Pot was the, of course, genocidalist of Cambodia. He led the Khmer Rouge. I had two wives. Uh, the first he married, I love this, they were communists who were educated in France, in Paris, by French communists at the Sorbonne. And uh, they got married on Bastille Day, which is their holy day, of course. Now, I, I, I find that fact delectable, I, I, I must say. Uh, she developed, they never had children, she developed schizophrenia, he divorced her after the Khmer Rouge fell. When he was about 60 or 61, a wife was found for him among Khmer Rouge cadres. They were fighting in the jungles, mainly in Northwest Cambodia, I believe. And this young worker was, youngish worker was found for him and they had a child. A Pol Pot was about 60, maybe 61, and this was a daughter. And apparently he treated her very tenderly, very affectionately, and she loved him. He died when she was 12. She went on to earn a master's degree in English literature. And the reason I say this with such wonder in my voice is that, well, for, it's interesting, first of all, just on its face. But don't forget that the Khmer Rouge killed people simply because they wore glasses, which suggested that they might have read something which made them dangerous to the regime. And so Pol Pot's brother number one's daughter gets, of all things, a master's degree in English literature. She got married last year. She was 30. Beautiful wedding. Blah, blah, blah. Loves her father, the memory of her father. I have a feeling she doesn't really face up to the crimes of the Khmer Rouge. I'll get to that in a minute. So those are sketches, not so much sketches as tidbits. As I say, these kids, they have something in common, but they're individuals. And uh, people like to wrestle with bigger questions as well they should. For example, nature, nurture. Uh, but when I think of this question in the context of my book, I think of the two Ceausescu boys, Valentin and Niku. Niku was a perfect little monster who swaggered and raped and tortured and killed his way through Romania until he drank himself to death in his early 40s after his parents fell. This is exactly what Vasily Stalin did, almost a carbon copy. Niku Ceausescu was almost a comic book little monster who had absolute license because of his parents and exploited that license ruthlessly. His older brother, Valentin, so far as I know, has lived blamelessly. He's never harmed a hair on anyone's head. He never wanted anything to do with power or politics or dictatorship. He became a physicist. He's worked at the same scientific institute on the outskirts of Bucharest the whole of his career. He keeps his head down. He has a circle of friends. Where does that leave me with nature and nurture? As, as our president said in a different context, that's above my pay grade. And I'll, I'll leave it to others to think about. Um, one of my friends who read and reviewed my book, uh, the professor Daniel Mahoney of Assumption College, said that the book had a theme. It is um, live not by lies, 
which was the Solzhenitsyn admonition. And uh, most of these characters do live by lies. And, and it's necessary to a degree. I'm not defending lying and faith in lies. But I think that a lot of these kids, if they faced up to the truth, would simply go crazy. And many of them are crazy enough as it is. And I, I was struck by something I saw. I include this in the afterword of my book. When I was writing my book, I passed a poster in my neighborhood in New York for a Broadway show, Jersey Boys, which is about early rock and roll. And the tagline was, everyone remembers it the way he needs to. And I thought, this is true of, of these kids I'm studying. Uh, many of them, most of them, remember it the way they need to. They twist things. It's all wrong. But otherwise, how could they really get out of bed, I would think? And I was discussing this, especially the Stalin family with Ignat Solzhenitsyn, who is one of the great man's three sons. Ignat is a musician. He's a pianist and conductor. And so it occurred to me when we were saying this and that about the Stalin kids that Stalin's son Vasily and Ignat are really exact counterparts. Vasily was the son of the worst man in the history of the Soviet Union, Ignat is the son of the best man in the history of the Soviet Union. Neither one chose that fate. Now, look, you can't help your parents. And these kids I've studied have made choices. Uh, some good, uh, some lousy, some criminal, some brutal. And I don't excuse Vasily. He was a horrible guy who hurt a lot of people. But I just consider this. Uh, First of all, Vasily's born to Joseph Stalin. Let's begin with that. That's a little strange. Second, his mother kills herself when he is 11. Uh, Svetlana's six. Now, Svetlana lucked out a bit in, <laughs> to the extent that Svetlana Stalin can never luck out in that she was raised by one nanny in particular, a warm, loving, indeed Christian woman. Uh, Vasily was raised by his father's bodyguards who were the hardest, meanest, toughest men in the whole Soviet secret police. I'm not excusing Vasily, but it would have been surprising if he turned out non-vicious. And he was really quite vicious. Uh, loyalty is a question that arises in my book. Uh, loyalty is a virtue, of course. Uh, you want to be loyal to your parents. Uh, to your father, to your family. There are even political loyalties, but you think of what JFK said, sometimes party loyalty demands too much. So does family loyalty. Uh, what do you do if your father's a mass murderer? That you're, you're, you're torn, or to use that terrible modern psychological term, conflicted. Certainly Svetlana Stalin was like this for the whole of her life, really. She, she felt rather, at times, I think she felt rather guilty about her defection, and her books, her truth-telling. She said, my father would have shot me for what I've done. She is quite right. So I, I do try to be sympathetic to these kids, slip into their shoes. Sometimes it's very hard. The stories in this book are eye-popping, some of them. Uh, and there's also some uplift, um, some goodness. Uh, but I often think, how would I handle it? Take that kid whose mother, when he was 30, kid, this man whose mother told him, that he was Hitler's son. I mean, my goodness, my mother never told me that, and that neither did yours, uh, but his did, and so we had to deal with it. Uh, many readers of my, I say many readers, some readers of my book, who have spoken with me or written me, have said that reading this book made them more appreciative of democracy, freedom, the rule of law, an atmosphere of ordered liberty, uh, the rule of laws, as I discover more and more, the older I get, relatively uncommon in the world. It is exceptional. And the rule of law is really a precious thing to live under. And some readers, including Mark Helprin, who wrote a blurb for me, uh, said that this book uh, made them uh, grateful to be living in a liberal democracy. And uh, so am I. And on that mushy note, I'll thank you and ask for questions. Thank you so much. And ask, ask whatever you want. Don't be shy. Go off topic if you want. 
I've heard it all. If I don't know the answer, I, I may say so, or I may just bluff. So thank you. I'm a uh, Dutch Reformed pastor, and uh, one of the things I, you know, I was intrigued in seeing if I was, would hear you address perhaps uh, um, in the lives of some of these children any kind of a spiritual transformation. A lot of times, again, you learn a lot from your parents, but, uh, but the grace of God can enter into the lives of some of these individuals and can really transform them. And I wonder if you came across any examples of that. You mentioned, for instance, uh, one of the Stalin um, daughters, she, her I believe it was her. She was raised by a, a, her a nurse and who came along and who was a Christian and was very kind and tender to her. I'm wondering if you saw that in any of the lives of these individuals, any um, uh, transformation spiritually where they you know, came to, to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and then just became you know, tremendously loving and powerful in a way that their parents were not. I'm afraid I can't give you many examples, but Svetlana Stalin did have a conversion. Uh, in the late 1950s, I believe, after her father died, she was baptized, and she writes about this quite movingly and specifically in her memoir, 20 Letters to a Friend. It's a very powerful, I would call it a testimony that she gives. She, um, she wavered throughout her life, as people do. She was a seeker. She went from religion to religion and place to place. She was a vagabond. She was restless. But I do believe there was greatness in her. She saw through the lies of the dictatorship, uh, the lies of the Stalin machine and the Soviet machine, and it was very, very hard. It was a very hard thing to break with. Uh, you can imagine the, the, the competing tendencies and the competing loyalties. So I do believe she exhibited great bravery. And some people might say, what are you talking about? Anyone can see that Stalin and his regime are monstrous. That's not true of all. Uh, at all. Uh, a lot of people Stalin persecuted, including in his own family, would never blame him or excused him somehow. So, so mesmeric was that regime. Uh, but she is probably my best example of what you're talking about, probably. The others, some of them have uh, some religion. Uh, some of them use religion to justify the bad. Um, but mainly, we're talking about uh, a fairly uh, secular and egocentric bunch. Their god is really the dictator, the father, who is the object of this cult of personality. He's, he's the deity uh, in the situation. And one thing we must remember when thinking about these kids is that they grew up in a cult of personality. They were surrounded by people, not relatives, ordinary citizens, who worshipped the dictator their father. Svetlana, for example, said she never heard her father's name mentioned ever, except with such words as great and wise attached to it. Um, th this is something that must be taken into account. The kids can be excused in a way in that they're surrounded by all these well-wishers, to say the least. I'm Dutch, Mr. Nordlinger, but you are much. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much. So we have, Would, By the way, when the first questioner uh, identified himself as a Dutch Reformed pastor. I almost said, well, who's not? You know, you're, you're, you're supposed to be here. I just love it. Thank I'm you. not. Would you mind telling us how you went from growing up in the Berkeley of Michigan to being a conservative? Well, um, I have a whole speech on that. Want to stay for dinner? Um, I sometimes call myself a backlash baby or a child of reaction. When I was growing up, there was a very popular bumper sticker on the left. It said, question authority. You could see it all over Ann Arbor. No one ever did. They just drank in everything the authorities around them said, you know, robotically and ritualistically. I pat myself, I did rather question authority. All the authority was on the left. And I guess I had a streak of rebellion. And um, Reagan became president when I was in high school. I saw how things unfolded. And as I say, this is a long speech. But um, kicking and screaming, I didn't want to. I went to conservatism. And here I am, a senior editor of National Review. I never wanted to be a conservative. Life forced me to. Life forced me into it. And as Jean, Ker as Jean Kirkpatrick said, I put her today, in 1985, I think, after she left the Reagan administration, she joined the Republican Party. She was a Democrat all through the Reagan administration. She said, I would rather be a liberal. I know what she meant. I know exactly what she means. But um, 
You know, there's an old slogan. I don't know if there are liberals here, and I apologize if so, but um, the facts of life are conservative. And as I say, it's a speech. But thank you for asking. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak, give a similar talk in Ann Arbor tonight. And I said that, um, I said earlier today, I, know I don't write anymore, I just tweet, it's all I do. It's, um, um, I said, um, no, we're not meeting in a phone booth. Actually, we require two phone booths. So that's good. And, th and then this University of Michigan graduate alumni is speaking in that other city. Oh. What is that other city called? I can't remember. <laughs> the other city, is that a, today? There's a capital there. I'm not going to speak at that football game two weeks ago. It's, I, think, I think I'll be ready to speak of it in maybe, oh, let's say, 2021, something like that. So, you should have turned down that, that East Lansing gig. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah. I just wondered if it had occurred to you along the way to also do a book about children of heroes. Just because in biographies that I've read, I've seen numerous occasions of the children of heroes actually sometimes suffering quite a lot um, and in part being ignored or so on. But anyway, I just wondered if that had ever occurred to you along the way. Well, I was talking, she should be your literary agent. <laughs> indeed. I was talking with Bill Bennett on the radio, and he wrote a best-selling book, made him rich, called uh, The Book of Virtues. He said, my son says I should write The Book of Vices. It would sell even better. People weren't in those. He said, on those same grounds, you should write a book about children of saints, is the way he put it. He could have said heroes. And... Um, Yes, often their lives are unhappy. But if you had to choose, I think it's better to be the, the son or daughter of a hero or saint than the son or daughter of a dictator. But, but they, their lives are not picnics either. One could think of uh, quite a few examples. That's true. And uh, I do a lot of work in human rights. Uh, I've written about human rights my whole career. I also wrote a history of the Nobel Peace Prize. And I've often noted that human rights and peace are not fields for small egos. They really aren't. People win prizes for a reason. Usually they're campaigned for. But like the autobiography, that's a whole other, as we say in my family, a whole nother speech. Can I say this is my year home in Michigan? I, I, it's perfectly natural for me to say a whole nother. I have to force myself to say a whole other. <laughs> have I exhausted you? Was there dessert in those boxes? I'd like to hear a little bit about the depth of the research and the amount of time that it took you to put all this stuff together and, and kind of the process that you went through. Sure. I, I address this in a section of my book called uh, A Note on Sources. I was really a kind of scavenger. I don't know if you were a kid, you went on a scavenger hunt. I also describe myself as a bit of a garbage man. Uh, I, I latched onto every scrap I could find every passing remark, everything in a memoir, things in old newspapers, which are now found online. The sons and daughters of dictators are usually bit players. Uh, they aren't main players, but sometimes they enter the story. And when they do, then that was like gold for me. So I read as much as I could and talked to as many people as I could, people in and around these dictatorships, about what they uh, remember uh, what may be new in these lives. Um, that's so, so, and I, I tell you how I latch on to trivialities, uh, because there's some subjects you write about, there's a wealth of information too much, and some you need every nugget. So I attempted to interview Kimi Tojo. She sent me a polite no thank you. Believe me, these kids don't want to talk usually they, at all. Uh, those who, are, well, first of all, most of them in this book are dead. Others of them are in prison or otherwise indisposed. But Kimmy sent me a, an envelope whose return address stamp bore the image of a Jefferson Memorial. Now that's a triviality. She probably got it from a charity in the mail. But to me, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Kojo's daughter is using a return address stamp with the Jefferson Memorial on it. That's a funny little twist of history. That'd be a footnote for anyone else. But you know, that's a proud paragraph for me. It's that kind of book. 
personally, <clears throat> I have always found it <clears throat> mysterious that people can become dictators and have all these acolytes around them, fawning all over them and things like that. Along the way, did you get any insight into the, the dynamic behind that? Yes. Thank you for asking. I want to say a couple of things about dictators that are unpleasant, or maybe I should say more things. Here's a dirty little secret about dictators. There aren't really any dummies among them. They are really, really smart. They're brainy, high IQ types, all of them. Uh, you will hear, for example, that Stalin was on top because he was the most ruthless. Nonsense. They were all ruthless, these Bolsheviks. Those lieutenants under him, Barry and the rest, they weren't one whit less ruthless. He was really, really smart. Saddam Hussein, cunning as a rat. Mao, too smart for his own good, and so on. These are terribly smart people. They're also, I'm sorry to say, quite personable, quite charismatic. And they can be seductive. They can be magnetic and mesmeric and, and shining. You know, this is really something to be watched, this, this strongman. I also discovered something I have later in my life, my adult life. When I was a kid, I always thought of a dictatorship as, you know, this is a small clutch of people led by a charismatic SOB, you know, lording it over the whole country, the whole society at point of bayonet. And that's true to a degree. But the sad fact is all of these dictatorships have some popular support. They really do. I wish it weren't so. Now, you don't see these dictators submitting themselves to elections. I grant you. But none of them was out, is without popular support. And I'm sorry to say the same is true of terror movements. I was speaking with a very well-informed man who has lived in Iraq for some time. I said, does ISIS have popular support? Oh, yes. A great deal. This is a very hard pill for someone like me to swallow who thinks or wants to think that we all want to be good liberal Democrats. So this is really the, this strong man, this man on a horse, I must say is something to be watched. Um, I'm a numbers guy. So if you don't mind, um, maybe sticking with the senior set, was, uh, was he the, uh, the number one in terms of the, <clears throat> the total amount of people that were killed under his leadership was Mao, like number one, and then who was the same pecking order, if you will? Like who would be the most brutal? All right. What good questions. Um, I'm going to get real ghoulish on you. Friend and I used to say, please forgive me for this. There has to be some gallows humor in my book and in talks like this. Many years ago, a, friend, a college classmate and I used to refer to Pol Pot as the Wade Boggs of dictators because he hit for average. And you know, he killed between a fifth and a quarter of the Cambodian population. Mao couldn't match that. There are too many Chinese. But Mao has the edge in absolute numbers, 70 million, 80 million. And then Stalin. Yeah. But the Khmer Rouge killed the highest percentage. The question, 20-ish. Those are just dead. That's not including the persecuted and the maimed. Um, I, I think the other question was, who is the worst a dictator? Now, this is really one grand tie. But I must say that, in my mind, there's something about Mao. And I'll tell you why. He was so chilling, so clinical, so detached. He was a man more or less devoid of human feelings. He wasn't happy. He wasn't sad. He wasn't mad. But he was just rather scientific. And he viewed the hundreds of millions of Chinese as so much experimental fodder. You know, he was barely human. You expect that there were, you know, wires and things on the other side of his skin. Now, Saddam Hussein, forgive me for saying so, but you can sort of recognize him as a fellow human being, a monster and a murderer, of course, and an extreme human being, but someone, for example, given to volcanic rages. Mao would never have erupted in rage. Never. He was too cool. And I think that that makes him, to me, just about the most chilling of them. But you really can't rank them. They were all terrible. And, um, well, let me contradict myself. I also say that in the dictator business, you sometimes have to grade on a curve. And 
And if you, in, in many of these, some of these dictatorships, if you wanted to keep your head down and have no freedom of expression and have no participation whatsoever in politics, you could sort of live your life. You could sort of stumble through. But totalitarian societies make that impossible. Impossible. You can't keep your head down. They come get you, whether you like it or not. We can't end on that note, can we? Should we have one more? <laughs> no. Well, Maybe we, we have to. Yeah. Are you we have to go, don't we? One more quick one. One more. One more quick one. Light and sunny. No, ask whatever you want. Maybe your next book could be The Parents of Monsters. I will leave you with this. <laughs> On the subject of Saddam Hussein, I'm not excusing the man. Trust me. I'm glad we knocked him over. Um, his biological father took off immediately. Then there was a stepfather who was abusive. So then he went to live with his maternal uncle who revered a contemporary politician, Hitler, and wrote a book called Three Things God Should Not Have Created, Persians, Jews, and Flies. That man became mayor of Baghdad. Now, I'm not excusing Saddam Hussein for one minute, but those three fathers, holy smokes. Join me in uh, thanking Joel. What a wonderful lecture, even better book. Um, so so I, would, I think we can summarize by saying I think Lord Acton was on to something. Power does tend to grow. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of. If you're familiar with our past content or have attended an Acton event and would like to see it in a future episode, you can email us at producer at Acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Gabriel Jaja.